When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now here's Jack Riccardi. Hey, good afternoon. It's good to hear you again. And you never have to apologize. You can, we can start the show anytime. <laughs> Always happy to start. But thank you, Katie. Uh, well, as you heard, uh, the president will address the nation tonight. And you'll hear that here on KTSA sometime after 630. The president is going to call on Congress to act on the recent spate of shootings. But here, here's the thing. Um, for one thing, are we conflating all shootings? So we had the Uvalde shooting, which was a school shooting. It was in the, the vein of Columbine or Parkland, Florida. Then we have mass shootings, such as at the supermarket in Buffalo. We have this shooting in Tulsa, which is kind of its own category. The early indications are that the gunman who killed four people at a medical building in Tulsa and then killed himself was a patient of a doctor who he was determined to kill. He had gone to the hospital to kill this doctor, and his his intent was to kill the doctor and to kill anyone else who got in his way. Is that a school shooting? No. Is that a mass shooting? I don't know if you can consider that a mass shooting. I think of a mass shooting as somebody that wants to rack up a lot of deaths. If I rob a bank this afternoon and I kill the guard or the teller or a customer, I was robbing the bank. I was not committing a mass shooting. And then we have a kind of homicide in this country we never talk about which is that every weekend in our major cities, scores and scores of young black men are killed. Some of them are killed in places and in doing things they shouldn't be doing. Some of them are killed minding their own business, walking down the street, sleeping in their own beds. We have an incredible death toll every weekend in every major American city, and we ignore it completely. I don't know how you can credibly talk about gun violence in America, guns in America, violence in modern society. I don't know how you can credibly talk about those things if you are only willing to talk about one piece of it. If you only see a political benefit in talking about one piece of it. Who isn't concerned about all those things? Whose heart doesn't ache for all those things? And so... Right off the bat, to me, and I want to know what you think, 210-599-5555, for the president to have credibility, he's got to value all the lives that we are losing violently. You can't cherry pick and say, well, I'm going to care about this one because I, I, this, there's this bill I want to pass. I think people will see through that. Just as I don't think you can pick a gun or a gun type and say, well, this is the problem. 
You know, the guns they're coming after are, are represent a minority of the total number of gun deaths in America. They represent a minority of the total number of violent deaths in America. We're not, we're not going after guns on the basis of who's getting killed. We're going after guns on the basis of, of a long-standing political wish list that came up with a, a definition of assault weapon and expands that definition as needed for events as they happen. So I want to talk about that. I mean, I, I don't know that the president can really move the needle anyway. He has record low job approval. He has lost faith and credibility with people who did vote for him. He has done nothing to gain or earn credibility with people who didn't vote for him. This isn't a president who has won over people from the other political side. He is disintegrating the Democratic base, not enlarging it. And personally, and again, I don't say this with any joy or or humor, he doesn't appear to know what's going on. I mean, he seems really out of it. He was in a briefing yesterday on the baby formula shortage. And um, remember that the baby formula shortage was the result of a foreseeable series of events in the industry combined with a regulatory regime in the federal government that everyone was warning for months going back to the beginning of this administration was was a, a recipe for disaster. And here is the president being asked about why this got out of hand and, and he didn't act sooner. Cut number two. You know, the question you always on every single thing, why didn't you act sooner? Um, well, I don't think anyone anticipated the impact of the shutdown of one facility uh, in uh, uh, and the, the, the Abbott facility. And it was accurately shut down because it was the formula was questioned in terms of its, its purity. And so once we learned of the extent of it and how broad it was, we kicked everything into gear. And I think we're, uh, I think we're on the way to be able to completely solve the problem. But, Mr. President, they did the CEOs just tell you that they understood it would have a very big impact? They did, but I didn't. When were you aware? Yeah, have been more aware of that when they took months to conduct the inspection to interview people at this plant after the complaints were made and then only shuttered it in February? Well, the real problem occurred when it started, when it got shuttered. Um, so you're saying we, they should have anticipated it would be shuttered. The answer is, well, here's the deal. I became aware of this problem sometime in after April. I, I don't. I, I almost feel like we shouldn't even play these things anymore. Um, I debate it because he's not. He's not well. Um, he's not. He's not sentient about what he's saying. I don't know why they put him out there. I'm. I'm starting to come up with a theory about what's really going on here, but even I don't have a theory as to why they put him out there to say stuff that makes no sense. He. He's talking about the plant that produced more baby formula than any other plant in the United States. He's saying he became aware of a problem in April 
uh, when the plant was having a problem in November. It, it, it isn't credible that they, the people around him, did not know about this. But let me let me move on to another thing. Gas prices are setting a record every day. And the Associated Press has a story to say that President Biden is leaning toward making a visit to Saudi Arabia to um, ask for more oil production from Saudi Arabia. How do you feel about that? This president, with these capabilities that you hear on display, going to a country whose um, crown prince he has recently uh, called a killer, and, and, and rightly, probably, but a country that is sitting on top of the greatest reserves of oil in the world, is going to send its challenged president to a foreign capital, to a, a government we have deemed killers, to beg them for something we have. And then you look at inflation. It's getting worse every day. And what inflation does is not just raise the price of everything we buy, gas, food, housing, but it's also eroding the value, the power of our money. So every time you get a paycheck, or every time you check your bank balance, those numbers mean less. They represent less value. And inflation is a politician-caused problem. It isn't na- nature or weather or climate, cosmos. No less than Vladimir Lenin once wrote that the best way to destroy capitalism was to destroy its currency. He understood, and many economists over the decades have understood, that when a government creates inflation, it impoverishes people, but it actually enriches itself. You see, when the government prints more money, that's that's like a hidden tax. So you're doing worse, they're doing better. And they have no incentive to stop doing this as long as people don't understand what they're doing. So all of these things, the inflation, Saudi Arabia, the baby formula story, I am having a hard time talking myself out of believing that they are crashing the economy on purpose. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I've gone too far. Tell me I'm... I need to get out more. <laughs> I should get some fresh air. Tell me I'm wrong. This is not just incompetence. There's no way it's incompetence. This is not some death wish the Democratic Party has where in which they wish to lose all their seats in Congress. This is, there's, there's something else going on here. This is the destruction of a, of a vibrant, functioning, not perfect, but a functioning economy. They're digging this hole. They're they're doing it. And they're incredibly unpopular. And usually you can count on politicians when their popularity goes down, they'll abandon principle, they'll throw the plan out, they'll forget what they promised. These people in this administration are bearing down. They are doubling down. So do you believe the economy is being destroyed on purpose? Do you do you hate to hear yourself say that out loud? That's that's way worse than anything our parents or grandparents ever complained about 
when it came to politics and politicians. But it's hard for me not to think that. And I, I'm not telling you to think it, and I'm not telling you I can prove it, but the facts make it hard to think otherwise. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time coming up with an alternate explanation for this. Is the economy being crashed? Because I don't think you can make the case that, well, these are just really dumb people, or this is what you get when you elect the Democrats. Or, no, no. This is beyond that. And, and I'll tell you one way I know it's beyond that. They don't want to lose all those seats in the House and Senate. They don't want to get their asses handed to them like it looks like they're going to. So they are sticking with policies that are incredibly painful and impoverishing and dangerous. Even though, as poll-driven as all politicians are, both parties, they know these are not popular things. 210-599-5555. And then we have the president getting set to talk about guns tonight. We have negotiations going on between Senator Cornyn and some other Senate Republicans, but Cornyn is leading the the team, and the, the Democrats. Do you trust these negotiations? Do you think it is wise for the Republicans to be negotiating at this moment gun control? Is is that representative of their base? We we know what Democrats are saying and doing is largely representative of their base. I want to play for you uh, a tirade from a congressman, a, a Democratic congressman from New York. I believe he's from New York, named Mondaire Jones. He's a very um, passionate speaker whenever he speaks. And yesterday he went off on gun control. I, I, I won't say that he speaks for every Democrat. He's not in the he's not in the Democratic leadership, but. I want you to hear this and then tell me how you would negotiate if you were on our you know, side of this issue, you had our perspective on the Second Amendment, how, how you would negotiate with somebody like Mondaire Jones. Take a listen to this, cut number four. We can't let you get away with this anymore. Enough is enough. Enough of you telling us that school shootings are a fact of life when every other country like ours has virtually ended it. Enough of you blaming mental illness and then defunding mental health care in this country. Enough of your thoughts and prayers. Enough. Enough. You will not stop us from advancing the Protecting Our Kids Act today. You will not stop us from passing it in the House next week, and you will not stop us there. If the filibuster obstructs us, we will abolish it. If the Supreme Court objects, we will expand it, and we will not rest until we have taken weapons of war out of circulation in our communities. Each and every day, we will do whatever it takes to end gun violence, whatever it takes. What we will do is not fail the children of this country the way that you have failed us, the generations of Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and Uvalde. I yield back, Madam Chair. Sounds like a campaign commercial, doesn't it? I mean... It's, it's short. It would require very little editing. He could make a 60-second campaign commercial out of it. No sweat. And, and, and i got to be honest, I'm a real cynic about this crap because they don't have the votes to do it. And um, it sounds like a lot of, lot of tough talk for the base. But, but, but here's my point. You negotiate with this, 
Does this sound like the beginning of or the grounds for finding some common cause? You aren't going to stop us. You can't stop us. Dude, this is what the Second Amendment is for. (laughs) It's exactly for the kind of hubris and caprice of a politician who says, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want, and you can't stop me. You know, when a politician says that in most countries, they're right. What's made America different, at least up till now, is that's not right. Government's going to do what it wants, and you can't stop us. I can't think of a sentence that encapsulates the Second Amendment better than that. So on one level, I want to I want to shrug it off and say it's politics. It's you know it's it's pandering to the base. But then on the other hand, it's dangerous. You know I love these guys that never stop to think that one day they may not be in the majority. One day the the expanded, endless, limitless powers they're claiming now could be claimed by people who are their enemies what will they think then when they've when they've blown up the filibuster and you can have 35 people on the supreme court what will they think then what will they think if congress can just override the second amendment <clears throat> What will they think when some future Congress reverses their gun laws and legalizes people having ray guns or, you know, whatever, you know? They they are not, in my view, they're not capturing this moment at all. But that's them, and that's fine. That's what they do. Why would you send John Cornyn or any Republican senator to negotiate with that mindset. And and how as a country do we function if instead of saying, well, I know you mean well, but I think you're wrong, you say what Mondaire Jones just said, which is basically, um, you, you will not stop us, and we blame you, and you have failed. By the way, I think we're all failing our kids my opinion. I don't mean you're failing your children, your own kids, but I mean, I think we as a society are failing kids. I think this is a rough time to be a kid. I don't know how you would argue against that. I think politically, legally, culturally, educationally, uh, we're doing a number. I don't think this is our finest hour. I'd say this jokingly to people sometimes, but I I also think it seriously. I wonder what these kids will be like when they grow up and they're in charge of us. They're taking care of us. They're governing us. They may be very angry. I think they will have figured out how we have failed them. Do you trust Senator Cornyn to um, negotiate with um, Democrats for gun control? Do you think that's a good idea? Do you think that is um, likely to yield something you would support or get behind? 
You know, I, I've often heard it said that the real defense of free speech, the way you, the way you know when you have free speech in a society is when really ugly or offensive speech is defended. Not, it, not that its content is defended, but that the principle is defended. When I was a little kid, and I've told this story before, there was, it, it made an impact on me. There was a story in the news, this happened in the 70s, there was a story in the news of, of these Nazis, these Nazi pigs that m- intentionally marched through a Jewish suburb of Chicago that was populated by a lot of uh, survivors of the concentration camps. And they intentionally marched through with their swastikas and their flags and their sneers. And it had to be brutal for the people in that town. But the American Civil Liberties Union took up for the marchers, said, look, as much as we hate what they stand for and what they are, this is what free speech looks like. If it matters, it matters no matter who's exercising it. If you claim to be, as Republicans do, defenders of the Second Amendment, you can't wobble now. We, we don't need you when everything's hunky-dory. We need you now. And I'm not casting aspersions in Senator Cornyn. I think he's a good person. But I worry. He seems like one of those Republicans who's convinced that moderation is a virtue and compromise is a virtue. But you heard Mondaire Jones. We're coming for all the guns. We will not rest. You will not stop us. That doesn't sound like the the grounds for negotiation. I don't hear any other Democrats telling Mondaire Jones, hey, cool it, buddy, we're trying to negotiate here. I don't hear anybody saying that, do you? 210-599-5555, Williams on KTSA. William, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. So uh, this is a great topic for Gang of Four. <laughs> the, uh, there is absolutely no way I trust John Corner to negotiate gun rights. He, on his best days, he's a rhino. He, he's, he's never been a Republican. He very rarely is a truly a Republican in a big R fashion. So no, I don't trust him. He, he will come out of that meeting giving away gun rights. He will, he, I, he will find a way to spin it so he, so he has given up our gun rights. And and he'll he'll and especially if it's just the just the AR fifteen that everybody's well, so afraid of. Well, first of all, he can't he can't give them away. I mean, whatever he negotiates still has to be voted on, and um, I don't think I don't think that automatically means they're gone. Look, I don't I don't even think Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are going to vote for a lot of the things that the Democrats want. But but be that as it may, I just. I don't know why at this moment, given the hand they are holding, they even think they have to negotiate. Like, I would ask them, are, are you carrying around some kind of guilt about Uvalde? Would you have negotiated three weeks ago? Would you have agreed to this three weeks ago? If not, why are you agreeing to it now? And, and I, I think you're right. I think that's exactly why they're doing it now. They're listening to the media. They're listening but to that's the like ice. saying that's like saying being pro-Second Amendment makes you to blame or, or shares in the blame for what happened. That's ridiculous. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you on that. But it's just like people having white guilt. You know, they, 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 they have nothing to do with that, but they carry that guilt just because of the color of their skin. And I think yeah. there's politicians like Cornyn that are carrying that guilt because they didn't do something they didn't do something. They don't know what they want to do, but they just feel like they got to do something. 
Yeah. And yeah. as far as giving up the Second Amendment, no way. We have too many restrictions now on our Second Amendment. And I'm, I'm trying to understand required. their thinking. William, I appreciate your call. Thank you. I'm trying to understand the thinking of the Republicans because, okay, it, again, I could be wrong. We could all be wrong. But it looks like they're going to have this red wave election in the midterms. And what that means is there's great enthusiasm among their voters, and there's a, an exodus of people uh, away from Democratic candidates. Now, it doesn't mean those people are joining the Republican Party, but it means they're they're fed up, frustrated, disillusioned, uh, angry about the schools, angry about CRT, angry about inflation or gas prices, and they're going to strike out by voting for the Republicans, by putting the out party in. So if that's what's happening right now, and you're the Republicans, where are you getting the idea that you should negotiate with the party that is seeing the exodus, that is seeing the, the you know, people hitting the exits. The people leaving the Democrats, whether they're joining Republicans or they're just going to, in this one election, vote for a Republican, they, they don't want the Republicans to be more like the Democrats. And so I, I, I really, if, and, and we, we believe me, we ask for Cornyn on the show all the time. We'd love to have him on. I would be very civil. I would be very polite. But I would just like to understand, do you, do you see how it looks that after Uvalde, you guys have changed your position and are, are now saying, let's negotiate? That's an admission of shared guilt. That's an admission that, that you were, you've, you've had the wrong position. If you believe in what you be, you claim to believe in, and the Republicans wrap themselves in the Second Amendment, right? Then this is the moment when you say, hey, now more than ever, of course we believe in it. This is the very climate. This is the very sort of political climate that endangers the Bill of Rights. So if you believe in it, this is this is the time you got to step up. Not go into a a room, a closed-door room with Chris Murphy. This, again, may, maybe in the end it will all be for nothing, but it's not a good look. What does it say to people who are walking away from the Democratic Party? Oh, I thought I was walking toward a different political party. No, I guess I'm walking toward people that are pretty much the same. 210-599-5555. Joe is on KTSA. Hi, Joe. Hey, how you doing? Uh... I don't trust Cornyn to tie your shoes, let alone mine. I don't know how he keeps getting elected. Um, he's no different than McCain and Romney, and yet, and yet he keeps getting elected somehow. Um, as far well, he keeps as getting elected second, because his opponent is his opponent is always a Democrat, and and people will look well, at that and say, "I'll take." I'll hold on. They no, he doesn't get he doesn't get primary because he's an, a long established uh, Republican incumbent. Oh my but God. but in the end, when people get to the when people get to the ballot box, and you know this, Joe, they say, "Well, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for the R because I don't want this seat to fall to a D." Yeah, I get that. I think I may have done that also. And actually, I've lived here ten years. So I'm sure I voted for the guy once, but never again. I, I almost would vote for the Democrat over him because at least the Democrat's honest. And as far as the red wave goes, it's coming. The Republicans will find a way to blow that because they, they haven't changed what happened in 
the last election where all these mail-in ballots and everything, that has not been corrected yet. They talk like they're going to, but they haven't. And also, I got a lot to say, but I'll make it quick. You can own a cannon right now. These guys that say, you know, back then you, you could own a musket but not a cannon. You can own a cannon today. Um, and, and the Second Amendment has nothing that they say, oh, you, you don't need a, a, a assault weapon, whatever. That's defined as an assault weapon. I've never seen a good definition. But anyway, you can't. You don't need an assault weapon to kill a deer. Well, that's not what the Second Amendment's about right. either. Right. And all you got to do is read the letters from John Jay and Thomas Jefferson to George Washington pleading for that right for the citizens to bear arms because of what King George did. And that's what it's about. You know, it's about so we can control our government. Amen to all that. Well said. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the call. 210-599-5555. What do you think about all this? Um, Our question on the Stevens Roofing JR poll, do you trust Senator Cornyn to negotiate uh, gun control measures uh, with Democrats? Um, And then, of course, we're anticipating the president speaking tonight. And then, of course, we're talking a little bit about the economy as well. And this, all of these things that are coming together in this moment, the gas prices, the food prices, the baby formula, the supply chain, isn't it time to start questioning whether this is just incompetence? Like, gee, these guys are really not good at this. Or if you wanted to say, well, Jack, I mean, they're uh, they're just doing what they said they would do. I hear that a lot. Okay, but I also know, I've been I, I've been around long enough to know that most politicians, even when they're doing what they said they were going to do, or what was in their campaign promise, right, if it starts going sideways on them in the polls because they don't want to get thrown out, they don't want to lose their grip, they don't want their party to get wiped off the scoreboard, right, and have their lights turned off, they will do anything to reverse that. I, when I was a kid, I watched Jimmy Carter become this hawk on Russia and this hawk on uh, the, the uh, hostages in Iran because he was going to get annihilated in the 1980 election. It didn't help, but he, he threw everything out from the first two or three years and totally changed his presidency because he didn't want to lose. And, and Jimmy Carter's a, a man of principle. I mean, say what you want about him, but even Jimmy Carter wasn't Jimmy Carter anymore toward the end of his presidency, because he could see the handwriting on the wall. These people can see it, and they're going down with the ship. So something tells me there's something bigger going on here uh, that that we're missing, that this is intentional, this, this chaos, this pain at the pump and in your wallet is intentional. That they're trying to break the system itself I want to be wrong about this. Feel free to talk me out of it. That's just how it looks right now to me. Let me play this again. This is uh, Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York State uh, saying, um, we will not rest until we, the Democrats, disarm you. Take a listen. We can't let you get away with this anymore. Enough is enough. Enough of you telling us that school shootings are a fact of life when every other country like ours has virtually ended it. 
Enough of you blaming mental illness and then defunding mental health care in this country. Enough of your thoughts and prayers. Enough. Enough. You will not stop us from advancing the Protecting Our Kids Act today. You will not stop us from passing it in the House next week, and you will not stop us there. If the filibuster obstructs us, we will abolish it. If the Supreme Court objects, we will expand it. And we will not rest until we have taken weapons of war out of circulation in our communities. Each and every day, we will do whatever it takes to end gun violence, whatever it takes. What we will do is not fail the children of this country the way that you have failed us. The generations of Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and Uvalde. I yield back, Madam Chair. Mm. Or the short version would be, Constitution Smonstitution, right? You could just tear it up like Nancy tore up the speech, right? Uh, by the way, I was told that uh, I thought Trump was the dictator. I thought Trump was the guy who, uh, you know, suborned illegal activity and trampled over constitutional norms, didn't even know it was in the Constitution, right? To hear these people talk, they don't know what's in it or care what's in it. Or I guess they would put it as, it's too important right now to worry about the Constitution. People who have warned us of dictatorship have always said that would be the, the way the door opened. You'd be told, just for right now, just in this moment, just temporarily, just for this issue, just in this emergency. And haven't we just been through a period for the last two years with, just for now, being plugged into everything? So I think Congressman Jones needs a refresher course on the Constitution he took an oath to when he joined the House. But how do you negotiate with that mindset? And do you trust John Cornyn in a closed-door room to be negotiating with that mindset? That's what's happening right now. I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling you. 210-599-5555. I'm not even putting this on Cornyn himself. They could send some other Republican senator. The, the, the point is the same. Why are they negotiating? What are they negotiating? Chris is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Chris, good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, all this stuff, I don't trust, trust John Cord. I don't trust the Democrats. I don't trust the Republicans. we got to peel this away layer by layer. Uh, Democrats want to sell us to take our guns. Republicans want to do this. They kill kids. They just uh, abortionists. Then they want to take care of kids. Uh, take your gun rights where you can own a fully automatic weapon like in the military. You can't. You have to pass the background check, get fingerprinted, go through every all the bells and whistles, but I can, you can, as long as your criminal record is, is good and there's nothing against you, you can own a fully automatic weapon. You can own a 50 cal for all I care. But these people are lying to us and the blue wave, the red wave, the Democrats, they know just like the 2020 election, it was stolen. We know it was stolen since black and white. But people are still like, no, no, we, we, that didn't happen. The Democrats, they can, they have so many aces underneath their sleeves in this card game that they don't care. Yeah. 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 They can do whatever they want to, to do anything, and they'll lie, cheat, and steal to get what they want, and then they'll turn this place into a, a toilet bowl and then walk away from it when everything hits the fan. Yeah. And see, nope. I, I hear you. you so. I hear you. I hear you. All right, Chris, thank you. Um, 
And, and let me add to the Mondaire Jones uh, rant. Look at Beto O'Rourke. I know you don't want to, but just look at him for a minute. I promise we'll look away. So he's been on both sides of guns and gun bans and AR-15s just in the last few years. When he was running for the Senate, he was against gun bans. When he was running for president, he was in favor of them. Hell yeah, we're coming after your AR-15. And then earlier this year, he went back to, I'm not interested in taking anything. I want to def-, He said, quote, I want to defend the Second Amendment. I guess we should have asked him the Second Amendment to what Constitution, because you mustn't mean the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. And now, after Uvalde, he is again back to advocating for uh, grabbing ARs and AKs. I mean, I, I realize he's a joke, but again, how do you negotiate with people who keep changing their position? Part of negotiating is believing or taking the word of somebody with whom you negotiate, right? I've, I've, we've come to some agreement. Now we're going to leave the room. What we've agreed to is going to remain, right? You're going to stick to it. I'm going to stick to it. Let's shake hands. How do you do that? Uh, maybe John writes the Democrats are going ahead with their radical agenda without fear of losing the majority in the midterms because they know something we don't know. Maybe the plan fix is already in for the next storm to hit right before the election so they can implement their steel plan like 2022.0, writes John. Yeah, I mean, I, I have thought of that. I think that is a real possibility. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see whether it'll be a new variant of COVID or something else or some other um, kind of circumstance where they can again say, we have to do things differently. But it might not be anything that dramatic. It may just be that they're trying to normalize the idea of mail-in votes and multimodal voting so that um, when the results surprise us, when the results are not aligned with our expectations or pre-election polling, they can say, well, you know, a lot more people are voting now. It's kind of interesting. The, the Democrats are making two claims, to, to John's point. The Democrats are claiming that voter suppression is happening, right? Even though in election after election, there's record turnout. And the groups they claim are being suppressed are, in fact, setting records, for voter turnout, voter participation. But then concurrently, they're also claiming that way more people are getting involved in the process. You know, 81 million people voted for Joe Biden in an election you were suppressing the vote. What? So it may not be anything like another variant of COVID or some other health emergency. It, it may be that they, they just need to get a few of these 2020-style elections under their belt, under our belt, and then people will feel like that's normal. That's the normal way of voting. Like we talked about the other day, when something goes on long enough, people don't remember how it was before, and then, you know, the fix is in. We're also asking the question about whether or not what's happening with gas prices, baby formula, uh, inflation, food inflation, um, is this intentional? In other words, rather than making jokes about how bad a president Joe Biden is, which is not very satisfying to me. I don't, I don't, that doesn't really work for me. I, I know he's a bad president. We knew he would be a bad president. His own party thought he would be a bad president. That's why they avoided him for so many years. 
But now I think this is not incompetence or ineptitude or him being sleepy or whatever. Uh, those things are all true. But what is happening now is starting to look to me like intentional destruction of the economy. If you want to rail against capitalism, if you want to rail against the banking system, if you want to rail against the idea of uh, personal responsibility when you take a debt, you owe a debt, you have to destroy that system. You have to break it so that people will welcome its replacement. If it's working, you can't replace it. Lenin knew this. Lenin knew that you had to break capitalism or you'd never get the chance. Socialism would never get the chance to replace it. And he wrote about it very openly. Um, here's one from Rosalind. As things get worse and worse, I agree with you when you say this is all being done on purpose. It's being done on purpose by Biden and whoever is behind him. They want gas prices high. That's why they shut down the pipelines as soon as they got into the White House. I believe they opened the borders on purpose. Everything is going exactly as they wish it to. Jennifer writes to Jack at KTSA.com. This administration seems to want to force us out of our vehicles. They want to limit our free movement. They want us to suffer with intentional inflation. They do not want homes to be affordable. I believe this is to make us cry uncle and ask for more government to break us. That is the only explanation. No one is this incompetent. It's intentional. Doesn't mean it will work. I'm not, I'm not, some of the callers, and I, I, I love when you call. Some of the people who call sound like they have given up. Just so you know, and I respect that, but just so you know, I, I haven't given up, and I don't think it's over, and I don't think we will fall for all this, and I don't think that that um, what I'm describing... Look, if I could figure it out, I think a lot of people are figuring it out. If I can see it, and I don't have any special preparation for this, I think a lot of people will see it and are seeing it. So keep the faith. This is interesting to me, and I, I, I've been reading about this for a few days, and I, I want to bring it up now because it, it just does not, there's no good way to explain this. California has just passed a bill that removes the requirement for public schools to represent criminal threats and actions by students against other students or school officials. So under this bill, which is supported by the governor, Gavin Newsom, and he says, when it gets to me, I will sign it. It hasn't happened yet, but it looks like it's going to happen. Under this bill, California schools would have the option of not reporting to the police criminal threats and actions by students against other students or the faculty. Remember that in... Broward, in the Parkland shooting, this was the setup. The school district had decided to keep private matters that formerly had been reported to local law enforcement. They did that because they wanted better-looking uh, statistics, behavioral statistics and criminal statistics in their schools. There was actually an incentive under the Obama administration to do that. I'm not blaming Obama, but there was an incentive for schools to, to clean up their record so in Broward, they decided to stop reporting these things. Well, the, the Marjorie Stoneham Douglas school shooter was a guy who was 
escalating his violence, escalating his words, escalating his behavior. And it all came tumbling and spilling out after he shot up that high school in Parkland, Florida. And it was terrible. And people connected the dots, but they connected the dots after the students were dead. And connecting the dots only really matters if you do it in time to save lives. If you connect the dots after the, the killing, it's academically interesting. Maybe you can learn something to prevent future attacks. But wouldn't you really rather have those lives back in Uvalde? There isn't anything we've learned from Uvalde that would be better than just having those children alive, right? We all agree on that. 100% of us agree on that. There isn't anything we've learned or anything that's come out of this that would be better than having the children. So they were debating this bill in California, but they actually voted to do this after the Uvalde shooting, a couple of days after. Explain that to me. Explain to me how you decide, literally a couple of days after something, the whole nation is grieving. You decide it's okay for schools to keep these things secret. So right after Uvalde, the California State Assembly passed a bill that will give schools the discretion to not report, which is another way of saying to conceal, cover up, handle internally, Incidents of students behaving violently, making violent threats toward other students or toward adults in the school. Those actions are the dots. Those are the things that after a tragedy, people go, oh, yeah, there was this, and there was this, and there was that, and there was that. So who could be against? First of all, why would you not? involve law enforcement why would you uh want to keep it secret i know why you know why i mean you, you you're trying to make your school look good you're trying to make your district look good you're trying to make your numbers look good obviously we've got to break that thinking and one would hope that in a moment like uvalde we would break that thinking But here's why they think this is a good idea. And this is from Governor Newsom and the Democrats who sponsored the bill. So I'm not, I'm not projecting this. This is what they say. The reason we need this bill is because minority students were disproportionately being reported to law enforcement. Minority students were disproportionately being called into the cops. Now, if the disproportion reflects actual behavior, meaning if minority students are disproportionately making threats and acting violently, then I think we need to be honest about that, and I think parents of all colors would want us to be honest about that. You know, when there's a shooting at your kid's school, you worry, is it my kid? Will it be my kid? It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Or theirs is. So if the disproportion is in the behavior, okay, well, let's, let's look at that. But let's not hide from it. 
if the disproportion is due to bias on the part of those reporting, if you if you if you find that teachers are diming out black students more than white students for the same things, that I, I I'll be the first to say that's a problem. Again, let's deal with that. But if you hide it, then you can't connect the dots till after there's been a tragedy. And connecting the dots afterwards is not the same. Covering up violent acts is at best a mistake. And at worst, it's racial pandering. It's racial politics. And we have too much of that. You know, later on tonight, a little over an hour from now, we're told the president will speak about wanting gun control, demanding that Congress act on gun control. I don't know that that's going to mean anything or move the needle, but this is what they've decided at the White House to do. It would be incredible to me, and I'll be the first to give him credit if he does it, if the president took a holistic view of violence in America. Violence in America, violence against children isn't just school shootings. It isn't just mass shootings. It's the death toll in our big cities every weekend, every summer. It's black kids killing black kids. It's innocents getting killed and caught in gang crossfire. It's all the violence. It isn't just the violence done with guns or certain kinds of guns. It's the violence done with other weapons. It's the, it's the death that comes at the hand of fentanyl and synthetic drugs. It's all the things that snuff out young life too soon. What a moment if a president said, you know what, these are all important because all of our kids are important. And because the death of a child is a tragedy no matter in what form it comes. I'm not predicting he will do those things. I'm, I'm predicting he will look through a soda straw, squint at the teleprompter, and deliver targeted remarks about targeted weapons, the wish list of his base, and like Mondaire Jones, the congressman whose rant we played a little while ago, he will know that a lot of what he's calling for isn't going to happen, but it looks good to say it, it looks good to call for it, it's what his base expects of him. What do you think? What do you think about this California thing? I mean, I, it, it seems really stark right after Uvalde to say, we're going to, when things like this happen, I'm not going to name him. I'm I'm not using his name anymore. But when this this when somebody like this killer in Uvalde happens in our schools, shh, shh, we'll talk. Don't let it out of this room. Don't let the PTA or the parents or anybody know. Don't let the other faculty know. Don't let the other students know. Don't let the media or the community know. We'll handle it. And probably in a lot of cases they do. But when they don't, when they don't, and it happens a lot because this is not what they're good at, 
Then there are dots, right? Now we have to connect the dots. Aren't you getting tired of connecting dots? Especially when it's too late, when it's after the fact? Something you don't hear very much about anymore is the war in Ukraine, but it is still going on. Um, It is incredible to watch how quickly it has dropped out of the headlines, almost as quickly as it entered. Um, But we're going to talk about it for a few minutes with our next guest. We're always glad to have him back on. Jed Babin is a contributing editor at American Spectator and former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Bush 41 administration. He's on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. And Jed, welcome back. Good afternoon. Well, thanks. Good afternoon to you. And I just want to note that nothing's gotten better since we last talked. Yeah, in fact, I've been reading some articles that have suggested that there, and I wanted to get your read on this or your take on it. Um, I think the New York Times had a pretty lengthy one that said uh, there's actually quite a bit of, uh, I guess, decay or decline in Ukraine's uh, position or the advantages that they had, that, that they're starting to slip. Is that what you're hearing? Well, yes, in general. Uh, I think, obviously, they've lost an enormous number of soldiers and materiel, aircraft, and so forth. And uh, certainly they're suffering from that. I mean, it's going to retard their ability to resist the Russian invasion. The Russians, on the other hand, have lost tens of thousands of people, hundreds of aircraft, and uh, they're not doing very well either. So the question really comes down to, at this point, whether the Ukrainians can outlast the Russians or vice versa. And uh, they badly need the equipment and other materiel that we've been sending them. So I hope that uh, continues to, well, continues and will increase. There was a uh, op-ed, I I imagine probably written for the president, but with the president's name on it the other day, in which he promised that we would not send Ukraine weapons that could penetrate deep into Russian territory. Yet now we hear that they're considering these uh, Gray Eagle drones, which could do that. Uh, what wh- what do you think about that? Well, I think at this point that we've gotten re- assurances from the Ukrainian government that they will not launch against targets uh, deep inside Russia. Uh, but I think that's something that could change. And you know, at this point, uh, Mr. Biden has made at least three different decisions on providing uh, long range rocket rockets to uh, Ukraine. The multiple launch rocket system uh, is supposedly going over there. Uh, Mr. Biden first having canceled it, then approved it, and then canceled it again. I don't know exactly how it's finally going to come out. Uh, But the MLRS system has a range of up to, I think, 150 miles uh, into anywhere. Uh, But I think if the Ukrainians are saying they're not going to use it to attack Russia, frankly, that's good enough. I I had a question that maybe we know the answer, maybe we don't know the answer, but with something like this technology, could we give it to them but still control it? Well, in terms of controlling it, if you're talking about preventing it from being spread uh, to the enemy, uh, you know, that's always dependent upon whether or not uh, the enemy captures one of these systems. The MLRS system, for example, has been around since the 1980s, Uh, And it's really not the latest technology, so I don't think there's much danger in uh, having, uh, even if the Russians do capture it, which I don't think they're necessarily going to. Uh, I mean, certainly we captured, or at least the Ukrainians did, and I believe we have it uh, in our hot little hands. Uh, There's a container size, like a container you put on a tractor trailer uh, jamming system that was one of the Russians' latest 
Uh, the Ukrainians captured that, and uh, I have reason to believe it's uh, being taken apart in, uh, somewhere in Massachusetts and analyzed. Well, here's what I'm asking, and I probably read too many, you know, Dale Brown novels, so feel free to slap, <laughs> feel free to swap me back into reality if I need it. Never, but never too many. With these, um, with these MQ drones, these Gray Eagle drones, I'm assuming that they probably have, um, you know, they're obviously they're they're unmanned and they're uh, controlled via telemetry or remote control. If we saw the Ukrainians taking them further afield than we wanted to, I'm wondering if somebody sitting in the United States could simply reprogram them or prevent them from going past a certain point. I mean, we may have given them physically, but we probably kept the operating capabilities, right? Well, we certainly could do something like that, but I don't know that we would want to. Uh, You know, the Gray Eagle drones have a, I don't know, 30-hour endurance. Uh, They can carry the Hellfire missile. And it's one of the things that the Ukrainians really badly need. Uh, but I don't think the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are not looking to expand into Russia. They're not looking to attack, you know, forces deep inside Russia. They're really concerned with defending their own country and attacking the Russian forces inside their country. So I, I don't think that's much of a worry. Uh, I think the Gray Eagle drones are something they should have. Uh, frankly, they should have had for a long time. We should have given them to them. And, uh, now I guess we're going to sell them to them. So I think, again, let's go forward with it. We should be giving them everything that shoots, basically, you know, obviously short of nukes. So I read an essay about, uh, about this. It was entitled America's Interest in Ukraine. And the author's argument was that the strategic value of Ukraine to Russia is that Russia has always valued its strategic depth, that any invader of Russia needed to go a long, long way to get to Moscow. So they like having a lot of, you know, frontier between uh, themselves and whoever they perceive their enemies to be. Ukraine is is a big piece of that. Uh, without control of Ukraine, the potential, en- and if Ukraine joined NATO, the potential enemy is that much closer to Moscow, he was saying. Um, a, do you agree that that is of value to Putin, and B, then what is the strategic value of Ukraine to us? Well, it may very well be that Putin believes that Ukraine had that sort of a value, but I don't think that he really could believe that based on the technology of weapons these days. What really the Russians are interested in is, you know, Ukraine is one of the biggest wheat producers in the world. And it was always the breadbasket of the Soviet Union when the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Empire. Uh, and Russia wants that back. Putin wants that back. Uh, right now, what he's doing is blockading the export of Ukrainian grain uh, and strangling their economy in part with that. Uh, so I think his interest is really more expansionist than defensive. And, and again, I don't see that Russia is threatened in any respect by massive invading armies. You know, Napoleon tried it. Hitler tried it. It really just doesn't seem like a good idea. But Russia is vulnerable like every other nation is. The long-range missiles, aircraft, and so forth. And Ukraine doesn't really have much of a value. The second part of your question is, as I've been saying consistently, I hope, uh, we do not have a sufficient national security interest in Ukraine to go to war over it. We want to support them. We want to support freedom everywhere it can be supported. Uh, but that does not mean we go to war for Ukraine. Do you think NATO's security, which is based on the the promise that America would defend a NATO country, 
Um, is that stronger or weaker now than it was before he went into Ukraine? I think it's weaker in a lot of respects because, number one, it has shown that most of the NATO nations do not have a military capable of defending themselves. Uh, you know what, very first, uh, the first couple of days of this war, the commander of the German army, and I forget the gentleman's name, uh, but he went to the German government and said, you know, um, I really don't have any options to offer you in defense of the alliance. So I think at this point it's weaker. I think it could be stronger, uh, certainly with uh, Sweden and uh, Finland coming in, if the Turks allow it. Uh, that would boost our capabilities and NATO's capabilities. But, you know, some of the nations that have been included in NATO since the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, for example, Montenegro, uh, you know, that's if you remember the mouse that roared. I mean, this is like the Duchy of Grand Fenwick. Uh, they don't have they don't bring anything to the fight, Jack. You know, you, so. now, Jed, you've got to be careful because I do remember that novel. But you're, you're, you're cutting out a lot of people younger than us. aren't oh, have I'm, any I'm idea. Dating, I'm, I'm dating myself. I know. <laughs> Look it up, folks. Peter Sellers, The Mouse That Roared. Anyway. Yeah, but a that's great the, book, that's great movie, movie, yeah. Yes. So absolutely. speaking of books, um, and I mentioned Dale Brown. I think it was Dale Brown who had a whole uh, narrative in his novels that uh, the the new Europe kind of breaks out and creates its own new NATO. I forget what they call it. But his premise is countries like Poland and, and the, the new uh, the newer democracies of Europe, they they want and need a different security uh, setup than NATO offers. They don't trust the old Europe of France and Britain. Um, could you see that happening at some point where countries like Poland recognize that they're going to have to ally with like-minded powers, and that may not be in you know that may not be NATO. Well, I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetime, simply because they can't defend themselves. I mean, whether it's Poland or Sweden or Great Britain or France or whatever, none of those countries or even all of them together can't defend themselves without our support. So that comes with the NATO framework. And if they don't like it, well, you know, I just don't see that they're going to be able to establish anything that's going to compete with NATO. Uh, Macron in France and the European Union have been trying to establish something like that, some sort of European defense force. Uh, they've been trying to do that for more than a decade and uh, see how far they've gotten. Near, nowhere near anything that's realistic. I guess I just, uh, to me, NATO has gotten so much bigger, and there's such a uh, an obvious schism between old Europe and new Europe, as as Rumsfeld used yes. to call it. That I just, I it seems like a it seems like a family in name only, you know. Well, I think that's pretty much right. Uh, I think it's an alliance in name only, again, because most of the NATO countries can't provide for their own defense anyway, and are not going to be of any value if a fight really comes out. Uh, so the question is how they deal with it and how we deal with it. I think right now we are better off with NATO than without it. Uh, but I think that some NATO members, I mean, for example, Turkey, which sides with Russia a lot more than it sides with us, uh, you know, if there only were a way uh, to get them out of NATO would be a good thing. But unfortunately, the NATO treaty does not provide for that. So we're stuck. Contributing editor at American Spectator, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, Jed Babin. Jed, as always, thank you. Thank you. I cannot believe that Jed mentioned The Mouse That Roared. It, it, it was an okay movie. It was a very cool novel. It's a, it's a highly satirical novel. Um, I think it came out in the late 50s, maybe 1960. It's about a little country, a fictional little country, one of those, like, 
Luxembourg type countries. It's in Europe, and it's this tiny little postage stamp of a country, and they get their nose out of joint about something, and um, they're hemming and hawing and fuming, and no one's paying any attention because they're so small, so they declare war on the United States. And they send a letter, and the letter gets lost or something. So they decide to invade the United States, this tiny little country. They have like, you know, 10 10 men or something. Anyway, they invade New York. And by a fluke, they get into New York and they capture a secret U.S. weapon. And the book goes from there. And it's, it's a satire. I think it's kind of a, maybe a commentary on the nuclear age. You know, there were a lot of... In the 50s and 60s, there were, there were a lot of movies and books, Fail Safe and Seven Days in May, that were, you know, that played upon our our anxiety about how close doomsday could be and how a war could start accidentally. And so this guy writes this totally, uh, you know, off-the-wall satire. Um, and um, it becomes a novel. It becomes a movie with Peter Sellers. And... Um, that's, I had not thought, of, I read it when I was probably like a teenager or in my 20s or something. It's a really short book, you know. I have never thought about it again until now. Jed Babin mentioned it. Um, all right, so we've been talking about, uh, obviously, as we do every day, we talk about what's in the news, what's going on in our lives. We've been talking about the pain in our wallets with, Inflation, gas prices, food prices, the formula shortage. We've been talking about the pain in our hearts. We've been talking about guns and violence. Been asking the question, why aren't we talking about all the violence? Why aren't we talking about all of the killing of young people? If we care about it, then we should be interested not just in school shootings or mass shootings, but we should be interested in the, the death toll in our American cities. It should be unacceptable to us. It should look like something that's happening in a small, underdeveloped country. It's fascinating and, and, and really, uh, uh, I guess, frustrating that our politicians completely ignore that, do not want to talk about that, do not even seem to have any answer for that, or in total denial of it. And then if you really step back, how ironic is it, while we're talking about satire, how ironic is it that the political discourse of the moment is that too many children are being killed by guns, but we must make abortion fully legal, acceptable, accessible through the ninth month of pregnancy? You know, we were asking the other night, is there life in the universe? Is there intelligent life? Are we alone? Are we... What must that, just that contradiction alone, what must that look like to somebody watching from afar? Because look what it, how it appears to you and me. Are you going to be watching the finals tonight? Yes, more than likely. <laughs> who, do you, uh, who do you have in the finals? Like basketball? Right. Yes. That's what we're talking about. Just to make sure, mm-hmm. um, yep. basketball is my boyfriend. I, I watch basketball because of him, but I enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm going for the Celtics. I I miss Derek White. I liked watching him in the Spurs this last year in San Antonio, being my first one. I went to a number of Spurs game 
games. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm gonna root for Derek White. He played really well in the last two games of the series. So not that he was a slouch with the Spurs, but no, wow, not at all. He has he has come up big time with the Celtics. It's almost like bigger stage or bigger moment. It's oh. it's brought something out in him, right? And, and they were being really like commentators and people were being really mean to him before the last series that they played. They were talking about how he was contributing nothing and. I mean, on the board, he really wasn't doing much, but neither were other people. No. And in the last two games of the last series, he really put the numbers yep. up. And yep. it was nice to hear the commentators saying something nice about him. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, obviously my heart's with the Celtics. I'll be rooting for the Celtics as well. I, I, I will say Golden State's a juggernaut. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They've got it going on all over the place. So you've got you've got players. You've got like, you know... You've got people on Golden State, you've probably got six or seven players who would be the guy on any other team. But they're all there. And they're all they're all <laughs> there. Think, think of the, the you know, the Bulls back in the the And the Curry Golden. is otherworldly. I mean he's just mm-hmm. I just can't there's something about the guy. So I admire them and what they've done and may the best team win. But yeah, the final start tonight on ABC, Celtics and the Golden State Warriors. Have you um, Real, yeah. Have you seen Stephen Curry's show on Hulu? Called, it's, I think it's on ABC, too, called Holy Moly. It's like No, his, I've heard about it, it's, though. Just because we're talking about Stephen Curry. Yeah. <laughs> he's not the best actor in the skits that they do, but that's not what he's known for. But if you haven't watched Holy Moly, it's definitely worth a watch. <laughs> Rob Riggle okay. is the star of the show on that, and he's one of the commentators, too. So I just, will definitely check that yes. out. Yeah. No, definitely. I will check that out. Yeah, I can tell, you can kind of tell from the, from the uh, television commercials that... Uh, Steph's future is probably not acting, but that's okay. He's a cool guy, very talented. Um, so we're awaiting the president. Uh, we think in about 20, 25 minutes. Um, you may not be awaiting him, but again, we'll hear what he has to say about uh, gun control and uh, what his message is to Congress, which is doing two things right now. Um, Congress is getting ready to vote on a package uh, of things called the Protect Our Children Act. And then at the same time, there are these negotiations going on between select Democrats and select Republicans, the Republicans being led by uh, Senator Cornyn. And we're asking you on the Stevens Roofing JR poll, do you trust these negotiations? Do you want these negotiations? And if you're pro-Second Amendment, does a mass shooting or a school shooting change that now please don't get me wrong this hits close to home literally and figuratively but rights matter most when they are a heavier lift so if in a moment like this people who claim to be defenders of or believers in the second amendment if in a moment like this people say, we need to negotiate that down or we need to give some of that away. To me, you've just indicated you're not really on board with this. Your steadfastness matters most. And it it would be the same thing if you were defending freedom of assembly, freedom of worship, freedom of speech. It matters most when it's hard, when the atmosphere you're in is challenging. When it would be easier to give, that's when it matters most. So I don't know what Senator Cornyn is doing, and I don't think he's a bad person, but 
I, it, it's not a good look for them, in my opinion. That's that's what I think. 210-599-5555. The president is expected tonight to cite not only Uvalde, but the supermarket shooting in Buffalo, the church shooting in California, which happened the same weekend. And then yesterday we had a gunman kill four people at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That incident, from what we know so far, involved a man who had been uh, surgically operated on and had vowed to kill his doctor and had had threatened to kill anyone that got in the way, but was not, strictly speaking, out to kill X number of people. This was somebody going after his doctor. These are not all the same. They don't all um, involve the same inputs, and they shouldn't all lead to or call for the same remedies, in my opinion. I'd like to know what you think. 210-599-5555. Politicians often make a problem worse instead of making it better. And you need no better example of that than inflation. The other big story of the day is what's happening with gasoline prices. Every day is a record high. Grocery prices, every day is a record high. The ongoing baby formula shortage the purchasing power of our money is eroding. It isn't just that we can't find the things that we want to buy. It's also that when we go to buy things, our money isn't worth what it was before. That's inflation. And that is purely a function of government. Price inflation outstrips wage growth. It outstrips our ability to conserve, cut coupons, get a second job, tighten our belts in other areas. And it's the result of the flood of government spending that was supposed to offset the pain of the pandemic. So we had the pandemic. Government ordered the lockdown. They broke the economy. Then they sent out money. They flooded the economy with aid and handouts. And they said, we're trying to help you through. We're trying to ease the pain of of our policy of locking you down. But now they've created a new pain of inflation and shortages and eroded money. And it doesn't hurt them. That's the thing you need to know about inflation. Inflation is good for government. When government pays its bills by creating more dollars... That works out great for them, but it works out worse for you because your dollars are worthless. So there's no incentive for politicians to stop flooding the world with money or to reverse the effects of inflation. They can talk about it. They can say they care. The president says he's so frustrated he can taste it. But watch them. Watch what they do, not what they say. The president is also in favor of forgiving student loan debt. That's another inflationary move. They'll blame everybody else. Eventually, he's probably going to work his way back to Putin. They'll blame everybody else but themselves. But it's their decisions that have put us in this hole to begin with. 
gas prices. Every day is an all-new high. It was just a few weeks ago that the president was releasing fuel from the SPR, and he was saying, in doing it, we're going to lower prices. We take this problem very seriously. I'm here to lower gas prices. They've never gone down since he made that promise. They've only gone up. Every state is now over $4. That's never happened before. The average in California is now over $6. That's never happened before. States like Hawaii, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, Illinois, Nevada, New York are all currently above $5 a gallon average. We're closing in on it here. I read that the president is now considering releasing the remaining diesel reserves. Because diesel prices have gone up, and that affects, I mean, you may not own a diesel vehicle, but everything you use is delivered by diesel. And so they're uh, looking at a plan to release the what's called the Northeast Home Heating Oil Reserve. And that reserve is very small. This release wouldn't be part of it, it would be all of it. And what are the odds that it won't make a difference, just like the SPR release didn't make a difference? That reserve is for the emergency of a collapse in the supply of home heating oil for the Northeast. We don't think about it very much, but most people up in the Northeast, that's how they heat their homes. That emergency reserve would be gone as we head into the winter of 2022-2023. So all of this makes you wonder, are these people just really bad at governing or are they crashing this economy, breaking this system on purpose? Remember, the people behind Joe Biden, maybe not Joe Biden himself, who knows, but the people behind him, the people pushing from behind, the people that made him the artificial nominee of of a party that, that wasn't nominating him, that was rejecting him in Iowa and New Hampshire, right? Those people want the Green New Deal. They want a reset of the global economy. They want an end to capitalism. What better way to do those things than to break what we have now? What if all of this is breaking the economy, not just bobbling it? What if they're throwing the game, not just losing the game? Michael Avenatti has been sentenced to four years in prison for cheating Stormy Daniels out of $300,000. He had been convicted of identity fraud and wire fraud and got his sentence today. Uh, It was a mandatory two-year, up to 20, and he got four years. Remember all the times he was the darling of the media because he was the anti-Trump? Remember all that? I wonder if the people that were lauding him and cheering him on and and, and just, just prostrating themselves with, with, uh, with, uh, you know, admiration... I wonder what they're saying about Michael Avenatti today. They're probably saying nothing. Here's what they were saying. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's out there saving the (laughs) country. Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. These people all like you. I'm the only person right here 
Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller. We think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down Donald Trump. Michael Avenatti is a beast. Okay, that's true. And he, he's a beast. He's a beast. I hand it to yeah. her and I hand it to Michael Avenatti. But he has a great, bigger calling here. That being a lawyer is minimal compared to what he's doing. No one has talked tougher directly to Donald Trump on TV than Michael Avenatti. And Donald Trump is afraid to mention his name. That's fascinating. Donald Trump is terrified of Michael Avenatti. Now, this Trump a run for his money more than anybody <laughs> else, Michael Avenatti. It's existential threat to the Trump presidency. The Democrats could learn something for you. You are messing with Trump a lot more than they are. He has no doubt created sheer panic in Donald Trump's very fragile mind. Michael Avenatti is laying down the law as guest co-host. And is he really thinking about running for president? Uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. You look at the field of Democrats right now, and Avenatti's the one who stands out. If they decide they value a fighter most, <laughs> yes. people would be foolish to underestimate Michael yeah. Avenatti. I have always said that they need a fighter. Look, I mean, we're going to continue to use the media. I think we've used it with great success. Mm, that's for sure. You know, there's an old saying, the enemy of my enemy, right? What a stupid saying. It really is. It's a, just because it's been around a long time and a lot of people say it, it's a really stupid sentiment. All of that idiocy was because they were so obsessed with Trump. They made him into something he never was and never will be. Let's listen in now. President Biden speaking at the White House live event coverage here on KTSA. Among the rows of headstones with other emblems of belief, honoring those who paid the ultimate price on battlefields around the world. The day before, we visited Uvalde, Uvalde, Texas. In front of Robb Elementary School, we stood before 21 crosses for 19 third and fourth graders and two teachers. On each cross, a name. And nearby, a photo of each victim that Jill and I reached out to touch. Innocent victims murdered in a classroom that have been turned into a killing field. Standing there in that small town, like so many other communities across America, I couldn't help but think there are too many other schools, too many other everyday places that have become killing fields, battlefields here in America. We stood at such a place just 12 days before, across from a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, memorializing 10 fellow Americans a spouse, a parent, a grandparent, sibling, gone forever. At both places, we spent hours with hundreds of family members who were broken and whose lives will never be the same. They had one message for all of us. Do something. Just do something. For God's sake, do something. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time, that can't be true. This time, we must actually do something. The issue we face is one of conscience and common sense. For so many of you at home, I want to be very clear. This is not about taking away anyone's guns. It's about, not about vilifying gun owners. 
In fact, we believe we should be treating responsible gun owners as an example of how every gun owner should behave. I respect the culture and the tradition and the concerns of lawful gun owners. At the same time, the Second Amendment, like all other rights, is not absolute. It was, just, it was Justice Scalia who wrote, and I quote, like most rights, the right Second Amendment, by the, the rights granted by the Second Amendment are not unlimited. Not unlimited. It never has been. There have always been limitations on what weapons you can own in America. For example, machine guns have been federally regulated for nearly 90 years, and this is still a free country. This isn't about taking anyone's rights. It's about protecting children. It's about protecting families. It's about protecting whole communities. It's about protecting our freedoms to go to school, to a grocery store, to a church, without being shot and killed. According to new data just released by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. The number one killer more than car accidents, more than cancer. Over the last two decades, more school-age children have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. Think about that. More kids than on-duty cops killed by guns. More kids than soldiers killed by guns. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? How many more innocent American lives must be taken before we say enough, enough? I know that we can't prevent every tragedy, but here's what I believe we have to do. Here's what the overwhelming majority of American people believe we must do. Here's what the families in Buffalo and Uvalde in Texas told us we must do. We need to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And if we can't ban assault weapons, then we should raise the age to purchase them from 18 to 21. Strengthen background checks. Enact safe storage law and red flag laws. Repeal the immunity that protects gun manufacturers from liability. Address the mental health crisis, deepening the trauma of gun violence and as a consequence of that violence. These are rational common-sense measures. Here's what it all means. It all means this. We should reinstate the assault weapons ban and high-capacity magazines that we passed in 1994 with bipartisan support in Congress and the support of law enforcement. Nine categories of semi-automatic weapons were included in that ban, like AK-47s and AR-15s. And in the 10 years it was law, mass shootings went down. But after Republicans let the law expire in 2004, and those weapons were allowed to be sold again, mass shootings tripled. Those are the facts. A few years ago, the family of the inventor of the AR-15 said he would have been horrified to know that its design was being used to slaughter children and other innocent lives instead of being used as a military weapon in the battlefields, as it was designed. That's what it was dying for. Enough. Enough. We should limit how many rounds a weapon can hold. <clears throat> Why, in God's name, 
Should an ordinary citizen be able to purchase an assault weapon that holds 30-round magazines that let mass shooters fire hundreds of bullets in a matter of minutes? The damage was so devastating in Uvalde, parents had to do DNA swabs to identify the remains of their children, nine- and ten-year-old children. Enough! We should expand background checks to be, keep guns out of the hands of felons, fugitives, and those under restraining orders. Stronger background checks are something that the vast majority of Americans, including the majority of gun owners, agree on. I also believe we should have safe storage laws and personal liability for not locking up your gun. The shooter in Sandy Hook came from a home full of guns. They were too easy to access. That's how he got the weapons. The weapon he used to kill his mother and then murdered 26 people, including 20 first-graders. If you own a weapon, you have a responsibility to secure it. Every responsible gun owner agrees to make sure no one else can have access to it, to lock it up, to have trigger locks. And if you don't and something bad happens, you should be held responsible. We should also have national red flag laws so that a parent, a teacher, a counselor can flag for a court that a child, a student, a patient is exhibiting violent tendencies, threatening classmates, or experiencing suicidal thoughts that makes them a danger to themselves or to others. Nineteen states in the District of Columbia have red flag laws. The Delaware law is named after my son, Attorney General Bo Biden. Fort Hood, Texas, 2009. 13 dead and more than 30 injured. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, 2018. 17 dead, 17 injured. In both places, countless others suffering with invisible wounds. Red flag laws could have stopped both these shooters. In Uvalde, the shooter was 17 when he asked his sister to buy him an assault weapon. Knowing he'd be denied because he was too young to purchase one himself, she refused. But as soon as he turned 18, he purchased two assault weapons for himself. Because in Texas, you can be 18 years old and buy an assault weapon, even though you can't buy a pistol in Texas until you're 21. We can't ban assault weapons as we should. We must at least raise the age to be able to purchase one to 21. Look, I know some folks will say 18-year-olds can serve in the military and fire those weapons. But that's with training and supervision by the best trained experts in the world. Don't tell me raising the age won't make a difference. Enough! We should repeal the liability shield that often protects gun manufacturers from being sued for the death and destruction caused by their weapons. They're the only industry in this country that has that kind of immunity. Imagine, imagine if the tobacco industry had been immune from being sued, where we'd be today. The gun industry's special protections are outrageous. It must end. And let there be no mistake about the psychological trauma that gun violence leaves behind. Imagine being that little girl, that brave little girl in Uvalde, who smeared blood off her murdered friend's body onto her own face, 
to lie still among the corpses in her classroom and pretend she was dead in order to stay alive. Imagine, imagine what it would be like for her to walk down the hallway of any school again. Imagine what it's like for children who experience this kind of trauma every day in school, in the streets, in communities, all across America. Imagine what it's like for so many parents to hug their children goodbye in the morning, not sure whether they'll come back home. Unfortunately, too many people don't have to imagine that at all. Even before the pandemic, young people were already hurting. There's a serious youth mental health crisis in this country. We have to do something about it. That's why mental health is the heart of my unity agenda that I laid out in the State of the Union address this year. We must provide more school counselors, more school nurses, more mental health services for students and for teachers, more people volunteering as mentors to help young people succeed, more privacy protection and resources to keep kids safe from the harms of social media. This unity agenda won't fully heal the wounded souls, but it will help. It matters. I just told you what I'd do. The question now is, what will the Congress do? The House of Representatives already passed key measures we need. Expanding background checks to cover nearly all gun sales, including at gun shows and online sales. Getting rid of the loophole allows a gun sale to go through after three business days, even if the background check has not been completed. And the House is planning even more action next week. Safe storage requirements. The banning of high-capacity magazines. Raising the age to buy an assault weapon to 21. Federal red flag law. Codifying my ban on ghost guns that don't have serial numbers and can't be traced. And tougher laws to prevent gun trafficking and straw purchases. This time, we have to take the time to do something. And this time, it's time for the Senate to do something. But, as we know, in order to do any, get anything done in the Senate, we need a minimum of 10 Republican senators. I support the bipartisan efforts that include small group of Democrats and Republican senators trying to find a way. But, my God, the fact that the majority of the Senate Republicans don't want any of these proposals even to be debated or come up for a vote, I find unconscionable. We can't fail the American people again. Since Uvalde, just over a week ago, there have been 20 other mass shootings in America, each with four or more people killed or injured, including yesterday at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A shooter deliberately targeted a surgeon using an assault weapon he bought just a few hours before his rampage that left a surgeon, another doctor, a receptionist, and a patient dead and many more injured. That doesn't count the carnage we see every single day. It doesn't make the headlines. I've been in this fight for a long time. I know how hard it is, but I'll never give up. And if Congress fails, I believe this time a majority of the American people won't give up either. I believe the majority of you will act to turn your outrage into making this issue central to your vote. Enough, enough, enough. Over the next 17 days, the families in Uvalde will continue burying their dead. 
It will take that long in part because it's a town where everyone knows everyone. And day by day, they will honor each one they lost. Jill and I met with the owner and staff of the funeral home. There's being strong, 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 strong to take care of their own. And the people of Uvalde mourn as they do over the next 17 days. What will we be doing as a nation? Jill and I met with the sister of the teacher who was murdered and whose husband died of a heart attack two days later, leaving behind four beautiful orphan children, all now orphaned. The sister asked us, what could she say? What could she tell her nieces and nephews? Some of the most heartbreaking moments that I can remember. All I could think to say was, I told her to hold them tight. Hold them tight. After visiting the school, we attended Mass at Sacred Heart Catholic Church with Father Eddie. In the pews, families and friends held each other tightly. As Archbishop Gustavo spoke, he asked the children in attendance to come up on the altar and sit in the altar with him as he spoke. There wasn't enough room, so Mom and her young son sat next to Jill and me in the first pew. And as we left the church, a grandmother who had just lost her granddaughter passed me a handwritten letter. It read, quote, erase the invisible line that is dividing our nation. Come up with a solution and fix what's broken and make the changes that are necessary to prevent this from happening again, end of quote. My fellow Americans, enough. Enough. It's time for each of us to do our part. It's time to act for the children we've lost, the children we can save, for the nation we love. Let's hear the call and the cry. Let's meet the moment. Let us finally do something. God bless the families who are hurting. God bless you all. From him, based on the 91st Psalm sung in my church, may he raise you up on eagles' wings and bear you on the breath of dawn, make you to shine like the sun and hold you in the palm of his hand. That's my prayer for all of you. God bless you. President Biden addressing the nation from the White House at a podium flanked by rows of candles uh, in glass jars, not taking any questions and leaving the podium right after he spoke, speaking for about uh, 20 minutes and not unveiling any new proposals, but reciting the things that he and Democrats have wanted to do for many years, even before Uvalde. the, the, this whole idea to me is interesting because it's probably the last thing you should do if you want those 10 Senate Republicans to cross over and make a deal. Nothing good is going to come from a Democratic president preaching gun control and vilifying Republicans, as he did a number of times in this speech, while simultaneously calling for Republicans to cooperate. But really, what this speech was about tonight was not about persuading Republicans or you or me. This was to get the left off his back. The 
complaint from the left, the complaint from the anti-Second Amendment movement is that the White House messaging has been too little, too late, too slow, too much on grief and consoling victims, too light on action, uh, too many eulogies, not enough uh, you know, hard-knuckle politics. So the president, I think, was attempting tonight to combine the eulogy president. He, he invoked a psalm. He talked about the poignancy of the funeral in Uvalde. But at the same time, hard message for Republicans, you let the assault weapons ban lapse. This is on you. For God's sakes, what's it going to take? Um, I don't know that this moves the needle, but it may get his base off of his back. So we asked on the JR poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, do you trust Senator Cornyn to negotiate gun control measures with Democrats? 82% said no. 18% yes on the JR poll. A new question tomorrow. We get started at 4. You can find the poll anytime at KTSA.com, and our show is on demand anytime at KTSA.com. You know, the president tonight recited a long list. It was like a miniature State of the Union address. It was a long list of wants and asks about gun control. You could almost take that speech. That's the history of the Democratic Party's wish list for gun control over the last 20 years. He, he didn't miss a thing. These are all things they've wanted before Uvalde, and some of them they've wanted before Columbine. And it's it's interesting to me to, to figure out what their thinking is on why they thought this was a good idea tonight, because as he mentioned, as he's speaking, there are Republicans and Democrats in secret negotiations. So while you're calling on the whole Senate to do something, you're stepping on those negotiations. You're vilifying the people who you are then saying, but they need to come over and join us. They're to blame. The Republicans are to blame for the carnage. Enough, enough, he kept saying. But we need him to work with us. And this is a, a mistake they've made before. This is what happened with infrastructure and Build Back Better. They asked for everything, right? A million things. And then when they got a couple of things, it didn't look like a victory. And they wondered why they weren't getting credit. Well, it's because they asked for a million things, and getting two or three doesn't look like a victory. I think they're going to get a couple of things here, but it's not going to look like a victory because they asked for so much. We'll break this down tomorrow. See you back here on the radio at 4 on KTSA.